This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation, who support reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. We are grateful for their continued support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners like you. Learn more at calliopea.org. To make a donation, visit forthewild.world slash donate, or find us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us in other ways, consider sharing our episodes through social media or leaving us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Hello, and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Shamira Covington. I believe that the the fashion industrial complex hasn't even grappled with the fact that the industry was built with slave labor, that it was built on native and indigenous genocide. So this pivot to racial justice is interesting, right, to put nicely. The fact that we have diversity, equity, and inclusion issues just in representation in fashion, this is just representation. So just seeing a Black designer get mainstream attention, even though the industry has profited off of Black labor, Black culture, Black aesthetics, um, just seeing Native Indigenous models on the runway, even though the industry operates on Native and Indigenous lands and also appropriates Native and Indigenous culture. Marginalized representation in the industry is still egregious. So for companies to be saying that they are for racial justice, I I mean, I'd like to see this, right? Shamira Covington is a PhD candidate in the Department of Textiles, Merchandising and Interiors at the Institute of African American Studies at the University of Georgia. Her research explores fashion as a cultural, historical, social, and political phenomenon involved in and affected by histories of colonial domination, anti-colonial resistance, and processes of decolonization and globalization. Her dissertation, The Revolution Will Be Embodied, uses archival sources that argue that despite the fashion industry's exploitation of Black activism, Black people have always used embodied practices such as dress, yoga, and dance to liberate themselves from hegemonic forces. Well, Shamira, thank you so much for joining me today. I really look forward to our conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great. So I'd like to begin our conversation in recognition of what you call the fashion industrial complex, which feels especially important as it highlights the limitations of transformation when it comes to inherently exploitative systems. And where my mind really goes is thinking about how brands are using the term sustainable in very finite dimensions. For example, 
We hear about businesses that are sustainable in their use of materials. They use biofabricated textiles, measure their water usage, etc. Or we see companies who have an ethos towards sustainable production in terms of paying their workers a semi-livable wage. But rarely do we ever see both. For example, a recent report put out by Standout Earth lauded Nike, Levi, and Puma for, quote, shifting their supply chain away from fossil fuels, end quote. However, we know that these fashion companies are also responsible for exploiting workers across the globe through cheap labor. So I wonder if you could begin by responding to this inquiry and the restrictions of the fashion industrial complex when it comes to achieving true sustainability. Yeah, so in your question, you you bring up the fashion industrial complex and what that what that is. So to contextualize the the fallacy around sustainability in the fashion industry, it's important to understand how the industry actually operates. And um, it does that in an industrial complex. So the fashion industrial complex is what I consider to be the fashion industry's collaboration with the social and political systems of society, and then the creation of profit from these systems. So I like to um, remind people of the prison industrial complex, right? Because we know that um, term more commonly, rather. And in that complex, there's an overlap of interest of government and industry to do things like surveil, to police, and imprison. And these are solutions to economic, social, and political problems. The fashion industrial complex is similar. It has historically and in contemporary times um, as well used things like slavery, genocide, environmental warfare, um, and the profits from that to solve economic, social, and political problems. And the fashion industry does this through the glitz and glam of consumption. So taking all of that into account, we have to ask ourselves, how can such an industry be sustainable, especially under capitalism, which is going to value capital accumulation, competitive markets, private property. So when we hear about brands being sustainable in terms of material or water use, we have to ask ourselves how that works. We, we know that we're in a climate emergency and we should absolutely be decreasing water use and creating with sustainable materials. But if you're a brand or a fashion company, you're still selling us a product, right? And, you're, and your goal is to increase sales for a profit. So um, when I think about that, I now have more what's considered sustainable clothing in my closet, but we, we haven't gotten to the root cause of consumerism or capitalism. Unethical working conditions are the same. We hear about companies who are, who are being transparent in where they manufacture, which is great, but that transparency doesn't change the fact that the fashion industry runs on overproduction and overconsumption. So we have workers who are ethically laboring in a system that's still unsustainable. And so the fallacy is what's currently considered sustainability in the, in the fashion industrial complex is not sustainability. It can't be. It doesn't take into consideration history or how the fashion industry is situated in capitalism. And at current, sustainability in the fashion industrial complex doesn't have it doesn't have the range to truly be sustainable. At this point, um, in my opinion, what we consider sustainability in 
the fashion industry is it's lip service, it's PR, it's marketing for consumers and what's considered greenwashing. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with everything you said, and I'm so happy that you brought to light some of these issues because the PR and marketing greenwashing is just feels like it it's bombarding us every day. <laughs> I mean, anytime mm-hmm. you look at a fashion website or social media, it's just, oh, there's so much rhetoric around sustainability and and I even the fabric stuff, it just kind of drives me nuts. So yeah, thank you. And I'd like to explore this topic a bit further in terms of revealing to what extent sustainability has really become nothing more than a marketing ploy. So for instance, IBM published a 2020 consumer report indicating that eight out of 10 respondents factor sustainability when purchasing. So of course, it isn't a coincidence that other research has found a 125% increase in new products arriving online in the US and UK being mm-hmm. labeled as, quote, sustainable since 2017. And right. This trend isn't exclusive to environmental concerns. We've also seen how in the past two years, many corporations and labels quickly pivoted to supporting racial justice. So as someone who is paying attention to how the industry exploits activist agendas, can you elaborate on the trajectory of the fashion industrial complex in terms of marketing and whether or not any of this marketing is actually authentic? Yeah, yeah, it's it's very similar to the greenwashing issue, um, as I see it. So companies are now highlighting racial justice issues, and um, it's it's woke washing, right? They're considered woke brands or or woke companies, and I believe that the the fashion industrial complex hasn't even grappled with the fact that the industry was built with slave labor, that it was built on native and indigenous genocide, so. This pivot to racial justice is interesting, right, to put nicely. The fact that we have diversity, equity, and inclusion issues just in representation in fashion, this is just representation. So just seeing a Black designer get mainstream attention, even though the industry has profited off of Black labor, Black culture, Black aesthetics, um, just seeing Native Indigenous models on the runway, even though the industry operates on Native and Indigenous lands and also appropriates Native and Indigenous culture. Marginalized representation in the industry is still egregious. So for companies to be saying that they are for racial justice, I, I mean, I'd like to see this, right? Um, and I don't mean just putting like Black people or Native Indigenous people in your campaigns, um, Yes, do that. But the justice, if truly authentic, would be reparative and restorative. Um, If companies were really interested in racial justice, they'd be seeking to repair harm redone um, that has been done. And they should be coming up with some form of reconciliation with communities in which the harm has been done. And I don't know of many corporations who are doing that work without also seeking to commodify and make a profit from those groups as well. So no, I don't think that this marketing is authentic, especially because um, marketing is promoting and selling goods. And to me, you can't sell racial justice 
you can't sell that as a campaign. You can only sell the illusion or the idea of it. Oh, I really appreciate that differentiation. And I'd like to transition our conversation to the very material makeup of the fashion industry. I've read that over 60% of our clothing is polymer-based, and we use mm-hmm. approximately 70 million barrels of oil a year to make polyester fibers. Yet, we continue to see many brands gain notoriety for recycling plastic water bottles into fabric, or upcycling fleece materials, etc. Now, I understand that materials make up just a portion of why the fashion industry is so wasteful. But before we delve into the problems with natural fibers, I wonder if you could shed some light on the intricacies of so-called recycled textiles. It's a complex idea, this recycled textiles or using what you said, like plastic water bottles in fabric. And I think these are all great steps towards a sustainable future in fashion. But again, I don't know if the industry is truly doing this to operate in a way that's sustainable. I think it is, it's all marketing. It's all, it's all a ploy because consumers are uh, more, I guess, social justice oriented. They want items or to be affiliated with items, to purchase items that are doing some good or the appearance of doing some good. The, the fashion industry, I think, though, isn't, isn't doing it for that reason. They're doing it for profit. Um, every time I think about the, the fashion industry's use of sustainability, I think of author, she's an author and activist, uh, Tony K. Bambara, and she, she wrote in her work, The Salt Eaters, and there's a quote, something like, are you sure you want to be well? just to be sure you're ready to be healed because wholeness is not a trifling matter. And when I think of sustainability in the industry, I think of that quote because it's not ready. The the fashion industrial complex isn't um, fully committed to being healed. Sustainability as we've been talking about it, like environmental justice or or racial justice. And to me, there's there's a healing process that needs to be done and to happen in the, in the fashion industry. It starts with acknowledgement, which many of these companies who are integrating these um, recycled fabrics into their clothing, they're not willing to do that. They're not willing to to know the history. They're not willing to educate consumers on that history. And it's it's evident in the way that we've seen them respond to criticism around their sustainability efforts. So I, I do think that using what we call green materials or sustainable materials is a step forward, but I don't think it is, it, it is a whole and true step that the fashion industry is taking in sustainability. Yeah, this inquiry on the deeper healing underneath the action steps is really, it's just so important and I see it in every avenue of the crises we're facing. Uh, and I'm really happy you spoke to that. And I initially came across your work via your writing on the history of cotton. And in an article titled The Legacy of the U.S. Cotton Economy, you write, quote, the history of cotton in the United States is complex and racialized. 
To fully understand cotton from a historical perspective, both European colonization in the Americas and African enslavement must be contextualized. The history of cotton in the U.S. includes the hoarding of native land resources and the exploitation of free slave labor. Additionally, from a socio-historical perspective, the legacy of cotton presents a record of human activities and the effects of those activities. For example, chattel slavery in the U.S. was primarily used for cotton production, meaning that human beings were treated as property, sometimes worked to death, and were grossly beaten and mistreated in the pursuit of cotton. End quote. I understand that this could be a whole episode in itself, and <laughs> I encourage listeners to explore Slow Factory's course, A History of Cotton, instructed by you and Teju Adisa Farrar. But for the purpose of our conversation, I wonder if you could speak a bit about cotton as another example of the PR behind fashion and the greenwashing of materials that we might naively considered to be less harmful than their synthetic counterparts. Yeah. So the the PR for cotton um, in the fashion industry has has counted on erasure. When when it's really considered, it's evident that the history of cotton in the US includes, like you said, the hoarding of native land resources, this exploitation of free slave labor. And most of us are familiar with, um, in our history classes, the Trail of Tears, which was um, in 1838, uh, the removal of uh, Native and Indigenous peoples from a region in the South that was known as the Black Belt, and resettling them in what was considered Indian territory, um, and it later became Oklahoma. And this was because of cotton. Uh, Native Americans were living on what was probably the richest soil for cotton production. And their removal created a scramble to settle these lands and raise cotton. And this led to one of the greatest periods in economic expansion and profitability in American history. But we don't know that about cotton, right? The general public doesn't know that information. Also, when we think of um, slave auctions in history in the domestic US, um, it's considered the second slave trade. It was to redistribute free labor, slave labor in the states because there was an unprecedented growth of cotton in the industry globally and in the US. And the US wanted to be involved in the global economy of cotton. So it had to expand this cotton economy. And so we have this second slave trade that happened domestically. And most of us in the public are unaware of this history. And that's because of the commercialization of cotton in the fashion industry. To sell cotton, it has to be appealing. And that means disregarding these ugly truths, the true history of the, fab of the fiber. Now cotton is considered or associated with fabric of our lives, right? It's natural, it's eco-friendly, but even that's not entirely true. We know that it takes significant water to produce cotton, except if it's organic cotton, in which case there's less water use, but organic cotton yields less um, as well. So is it really less water if we have to make more of it to make a, a t-shirt? So there's all of these, um, these hidden 
this hidden history, this hidden knowledge around cotton. Cotton's image has been created on the omissions and mistruths. And I'm not saying all this to vilify cotton itself, because as a descendant of U.S. slaves, I have a very deep connection and love for cotton as a fiber and a fabric. But I say all this to critique the capitalist system in which we live and operate in, and, and to expose that there is a history behind all of this uh, PR. Well, I'd like to go a step further and ask you about why a transition to organic materials like cotton, hemp, or bamboo isn't enough. And I see so many so-called ethical companies boasting the use of natural fibers like cotton without recognizing that we're facing a water deficit future. Mm-hmm. You know, you were, you were getting into this where it's just preposterous to think that we can continue to harvest more cotton to uphold an industry that produces over 80 billion pieces of clothing per year, especially given that cotton typically grows in dry environments to begin with. Mm-hmm. So I'd love if you could elaborate on the requirements of natural fibers from an environmental standpoint, or just perhaps any thoughts you might have in response to high-end labels who are seeking to make a name for themselves off of natural fibers. Yeah, I, I have more to say about the the high-end labels that are doing this. And and I think I think they are starting to make a name for themselves off of natural fibers because of consumer preference, right? Not because they're particularly concerned with sustainability as a, as a justice movement or they're concerned with the water deficit, but consumers have fiber and fabric preferences. Since consumers are more interested in sustainability, eco-friendliness, green, natural, or at least, um, like I said before, wanting to appear more interested in this, they are of course demanding that labels also appear sustainable. And as we just talked about on cotton's unsustainability as a natural fiber, other natural fibers have the same problems. Um, and I think also the problem is cost with many consumers. There's the critique, which, which I have, that sustainable clothing is too expensive for the average consumer, right? And so high-end labels who cater to this higher price point, this higher price point of consumers can, can use this expensiveness to their advantage by keeping sustainability an exclusive aspect of the, of the industry by leveraging the use of natural fibers. So again, I think this is all, it's, it's all a profit motive.
Yeah, and thinking about an article written by Celine Simon Vernon of Slow Factory, where Celine shares, quote, SourceMap has traced supply chains for most major clothing and apparel manufacturers, and the data mapping it provides shows that world trade routes are mostly the same as they were 150 years ago at the height of European colonial exploitation. In the same way that colonized nations provided cheap sugar, chocolate, coffee, and fruit to the West, developing nations now provide cheap, semi-disposable clothes to the West and global economic upper classes, end quote. And I know you're vocal as well about the realities that fashion cannot simply be discussed in terms of environmental impact. It must be acknowledged as a loud echo of colonial conquest, not just in terms of extraction of labor and resources or the outsourcing of pollutants and illness, but also in terms of culture and appropriation. So can you Mm -hmm. talk about whether or not you think this sort of recognition would reorient how companies and designers take accountability? I I do think that the recognition of colonialism would reorient um, both companies and designers. I I really do. But that would mean centering um, things like decolonization and critical race theory over the Western conceptions that we currently have in the fashion industrial complex. It also means dismantling capitalism, which is racialized. And so reorienting the industry to these truths is the first steps in reparative and restorative justice for the environment and beyond. But I think that recognition piece is the the industry is not willing to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember you're mentioning earlier in the conversation, the the willingness to heal and Mm -hmm. not being ready. And I would love to just explore a bit more. I mean, I know we've been talking about why you think they're not ready. If there's anything else you could say on that, I'm really curious. And then the second part to that question would be, could you describe what a willing fashion industry would look like? What would being ready look like? And what would a truly healing process look like? Yeah, I just would love to hear how you could see this manifested. It would look like decentering all of the white heteronormative voices that are currently um, at the forefront of fashion. It would look like listening to Native Indigenous voices. It would look like listening to Black activists. And doing that is not profitable. And so I I fear that although the industry is discussing sustainability, is using it in marketing and is is seemingly interested in in doing the work around it, that giving up that much power means giving up also the profit and consumption aspect of the industry which would pretty much topple the industry as we know it. And so what we'd have is something new. Um, I I don't think it can be achieved in in our current structure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see that. 
would you mind imagining with us what this something new would be? The something new would be if, if it could be conscious consumption, if it could be. So that means like intentionally purchasing things that we need, that we love, not just on a whim, right? It means that, like I said, we're, we're aiming our efforts and supporting and uplifting environmental and racial justice activists. We're taking our cues from native and indigenous peoples. We're centering black voices in fashion. The, the, the new idea that I have, it, it's not even like a fashion system or a fashion industry. It's, I guess, indigenous sovereignty and black liberation. It's, it's how we get to sustainability and it's justice. And although I have like grand ideas and, and words for it, I don't know what that something new would be called. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think about the educational element and really weaving justice into how we consume, understanding Mm -hmm. the histories so much deeper and yeah, buying what we need and what we actually have value for. Because I think too, with the fashion industrial complex, so much of it is like everything else in capitalism, endless growth. So there has to be a new spring collection, fall collection, you know, there's Mm -hmm. always new, 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 more, more, more. And it's the pressure to buy more, more, more. And then how are we really valuing the things we have? It's almost as if things that maybe were meaningful become obsolete because the next season's clothing or whatever it is, or it, mm-hmm. it seems more special. And and so it's almost like us as consumers can get into these traps of the next thing to buy rather than valuing what we do have as these special objects of culture and expression and also need you know i I live in a very cold climate like i do need clothing absolutely you know a normal you know a pretty much hairless body but it's like i can't actually survive as a animal creature in the environment i live in without (laughs) something on my body so um yeah it's like getting back to or i don't know if it's even getting back but i think about when folks spent a lot more time and had to be a lot slower when Mm -hmm. creating clothing, whether for necessity, adornment, spiritual practice, and how different that relationship was to what we wore versus now. Right. Yeah, just I'm thinking about back to our initial conversation around sustainability and just thinking about how we as individuals, you know, maybe we can be sustainable, but corporations just can't. And within that recognition, it would seem that buyer awareness is our best bet, despite Mm -hmm. the reality that many argue that the burden needs to be placed upon corporations and brands. 
And I just wonder what your response is to this, as well as the reality that mainstream media and academic institutions and companies will never commit to changing our patterns of consumption because it inherently weakens their power in society, which is, you know, so much of what you've been saying. Yeah, um, I I do believe that corporations and, and businesses have to be those those ones changing uh, the patterns of consumption, um, and I and I think individual awareness is crucial to our su- sustainability efforts. Particularly as you just said, it relates to education and fashion programs across the world to consumers. It should definitely be an integral part of education and include all the dimensions of sustainability, not just environmental or ecological awareness. So that historical and encompassing education that we've been we've been talking about all of the racial associations with that for sure, and we can we can do our part, but as individuals, we didn't make the mess that we're in, right? This has been a systemic issue for over hundreds of years, so awareness has to go beyond the individual. I think it has to uh, permeate our culture, and it has to become become the standard. And yes, we, we start with the individual reading and research. Um, and I, I mean, I personally started my journey in sustainability by reading about capitalism and in the historical foundations of that. Um, I recently read the, the Afro-Minimalist Guide to Living with Less by Christine Platt. So, so buyer awareness on the individual level, that depends, though, on the individual having some epiphany and, and wanting to seek information out. Um, and I guess if, we are, if we're relying on us to do that work and not them, them being corporations and businesses, how do we, how do we get people interested in sustainability widely? We have to get more of us, more of us talking about it, and that means that we need representatives or, or delegates in all of our communities talking about sustainability. But the the sustainability industry is progressive around environmental issues, but it's not very inclusive, you know, if you've noticed. So I think that the individual changing of patterns of consu- of consumption that that can work but the how the industry is set up now it it excludes a lot of a lot of individuals and so we we have to be having more conversations around this
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm thinking about those folks who live in cities and suburbs and I think that there's just a whole other set of pressures to participate in fast fashion and rabid consumption as so many of our physical spaces have been commodified, like shopping malls, for example. Mm -hmm. So just thinking about what you were saying about um, people in our community (laughs) guiding us and teaching us, but perhaps even more so, we're living in a period where this commodification is even stronger in the digital realm. Mm, mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on influencer culture when it comes to the fashion industrial complex? So um, influencer culture, via social media, we now have uh, shopping in the the palm of our hands, right? Through e-commerce. And so we can, we have the ability to buy whatever, whenever um, we want with a click. So we don't have to go to this physical space anymore, which on a one hand is, you could say is good. Like we're not abusing the land anymore with, with large shopping malls. We can now, we can now buy more easily, but that also means that we're consuming more. And again, it's easier than ever. And I think that social media and influencers have contributed to creating like this, this perfect environment for fast fashion to thrive, um, which causes greater ecological and human rights issues. Like I, I think when um, I talk about social media and influencers and fashion of um, this trend of fashion halls, for example, and um, this is when an influencer or a content creator tries on reviews and, and shows off large quantities of clothing that they get from a, a retailer. And they do this all at once in their, in their content. Um, and this is obviously encouraging overconsumption, right? Um, and I know that there are also sustainable fashion influencers that are on, on social media talking about uh, upcycling and, and shopping secondhand, things like that. So hopefully that continues um, because because we don't want to encourage that that overconsumption, especially with the 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 generation that is using social media all the time, um, right? I just because the social media operates in tandem with the fashion industrial complex, um, I don't know what that what that transition looks like from those fashion halls to over and overconsumption to the more sustainable, sustainable influencer and content creators. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that there's been some people who have been vocally frustrated that social media has become a shopping app to some people, you know. Um, I've heard a lot of people on Instagram feel frustrated that they used to go on for more meaningful content or personal content. And now not only is it the sponsored posts, but also it's just that's what they're seeing in their feed. I have mixed feelings about that. Mm -hmm. I think with the large brands, it is problematic being bombarded anywhere you go, whether it's on a website or social media, your email, anytime you open this 
machine with a screen, <laughs> you're being sold so much. Um, and, you know, if you click on one pair of pants, you know that you're going to be getting a ton of ads for pants or whatever mm -hmm. it is. So mm -hmm. the data collection, I mean, there's there's a lot of problems. Now, on the other hand, for small makers, um, I think it is a really potentially important source of keeping them afloat to be able to use these apps to sell directly to consumers. And maybe it's maybe the relationship is even different than just consumer in that sense because uh, small makers it feels a bit more personal so I think yeah you know I see there's I see both sides to that but with internet shopping even before the beginning of COVID I think it seemed like maybe the more ecological choice because you could stay at home you didn't need to drive to a parking lot and get out of your car and then, you know, all the things that maybe we thought would be burning more fossil fuels. But I think that has really backlashed. And I have a sense that so much internet shopping is actually making it just that much easier to buy things all the time because the stores never close. And yep. so many of us always have our devices and are always connected to some type of internet or service. And so I just wonder if you have any thoughts on, yeah, just viewing the difference between brick and mortar shops and actually going and even creating some relationships with stores versus this 24-hour online shopping that I believe so many of us have started to transition into. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you um, about the the e-commerce shopping and merchandise being at the palm of our hands all the time. Um, I mean, and then we have to factor in like shipping all of those, all of those goods, right? That's gonna, that's gonna use resources. We also have to think about like workers who are now having to fulfill all of these orders, um, especially in in instances where, you know, it's 24 seven, the, the shop doesn't close. And I've, I've personally tried not to, um, to purchase online from especially like big corporations or big companies during the pandemic in an effort to support local, um, local shops who were getting into the e-commerce business because of, of the pandemic. So I, I agree with you, um, but I, I think that because of this, because of COVID, that we'll, we'll continue to see a shift from brick and mortar to e-commerce. It's, it's just a matter of us as conscious consumers being more, I guess, careful with who we're purchasing from um, and kind of prioritizing family-owned or small businesses that that we that we have a relationship to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really thankful that you brought up the exploitation of workers and the shipping because I think that is something that is I think potentially becoming more. Uh, 
of an issue that some of us are aware of, but it's as if these people are um, not just expendable, but almost completely erased from our minds when we're online shopping or e-commerce shopping. And it just makes me also think about with textiles and fabrics and creation, uh, you know, the creation of the materials for the clothing, how much of the process is forgotten and erased from the consumer, the consumer's mindset when buying something. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember years ago seeing a image of a town somewhere, I believe in Bangladesh and the dyes for the fabrics were just legally allowed the once the dyes were washed through the fabrics were legally allowed to just be dumped into the waterways of this town mm-hmm. completely polluting this this land and the people who lived there and who were I think in so many ways forced to have these jobs. And so I just have a lot of trouble in my heart thinking about the erasure of all the people a part of the supply chain so that some of us can have another pair of shoes that we didn't mm. need to begin with. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I wonder if there's anything that you could share that you understand about the supply chain and the processes and how it's impacting and also erasing humans from, um, like erasing the experience of these humans from the end consumer. My expertise isn't in the supply chain, um, but I know from colleagues that, um, that like you said, the human, the human element of making our, our clothing has, has pretty much been erased. Um, Cause we think of the fashion industry or the making of our clothing as being mechanized, like a machine is doing that work. Um, and I think we forget that people are, are, are interceders there like people are are working the machines people are are a part of that process um and and every time i think of how we're so disconnected from the human element of our of our clothing i go back to the healing process and you i think you mentioned it how how we don't have um, that certain connection to our clothes because we have so many of them or because we were constantly um, able to discard them or to, and to get more. So I, I agree that, that that human element is completely lost and I, I blame it on this need to, to heal as consumers in, in a system that doesn't want us to to feel that human connection.
Vamos en busca del agua, busca del agua, nos purifica el corazón. Vamos en busca del agua, busca del agua, nos purifica el corazón. Vamos en busca del agua, dulce agüita, nos purifica el corazón. Vamos en busca del agua, busca del agua, nos purifica el corazón. Vamos en busca del agua, dulce agüita, nos purifica el corazón. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And this reminds me of another topic I've heard you speak about in context to sustainability and fashion is how Black history is explicitly erased from sustainability narratives, mm-hmm. which is certainly true outside of fashion as well. If we think in the mainstream portrayals around agriculture and land stewardship and ecological knowledge in this country, but you know, however, in terms of the fashion industrial complex, can you speak more to the ways in which the industry purposefully hides this history? Sure. Like like the broader fashion industry, the sustainable fashion industry does not do enough to provide um, equal opportunity and representation for, for all. When someone hears the word sustainable fashion, typically you, you get images of I don't know, slim white women in natural backgrounds um, is, is kind of the, the marketing that we get around sustainability. And the mainstream voices that hold the most weight are, are, are white and they're middle to upper class. Um, they, they often ignore the marginalized voices who have been doing sustainability and environmental justice work for, for decades. Um, and this is because I think the industry is built on very specific ethics. So the sustainable, the sustainable fashion industry wants to, to use sustainable materials. Oh, we're, we're interested in cleaning the oceans. We want to recycle. We don't want to use cheap labor. But what does all of that mean in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is fundamentally the most basic ethical practice of all things, right? And equality and sustainability and environmental justice, if we're to to be truly inclusive, has to be explored in terms of pay, um, education, rights, as well as visibility. So so who's getting um, attention around these issues? And then crucially, anti-oppressive practices. The, The broader fashion industry um, is profit driven and sustainability narratives should really be cutting ties from that framework. Um, we in sustainability should be incorporating racial justice, class justice, collective activism to, to reach true sustainability objectives. And so if that means leaving what we consider the fashion industry as we know it behind, then that's what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Oh, gosh. Well, there's so much in this conversation to be teased out for all of us listening and to continue to learn more and educate ourselves because this is 
a topic we can't get away from. It's so tied into our everyday existence. And yeah, I guess as we're coming to a close, I wonder if you could speak to the parts of fashion and expression and culture that excites you or that you feel drawn to um the yeah the beauty of clothing and um how you yeah if you believe that it's also a part of our human experience that we can have a more beautiful relationship with or yeah it's just something along those lines I wanted to ask you yeah, I I for sure believe that um, fashion, clothing, dress is is definitely a part of our our human experience. My favorite parts of of fashion and dress are are the stories that are associated with them. So um, I came to fashion through my grandmother, and I love hearing specific stories about clothing about. Um, the story behind the clothing, right? Where where it came from, who wore it before before you got it. Those type of stories really they to me give a spiritual connection to um, a piece of garment because it's it's connected to someone greater than me or before me. Those are, those are my favorite favorite parts of fashion, and I've seen more and more of those stories and more and more of that close-knit relationship between clothing and, and spirituality and, and humanness um, as the sustainability um, industry or, or the fashion industry has taken on sustainability. So um, I'm, not, I'm not completely despondent and, and um, pessimistic about where fashion goes from here. Um, I think, I think there's a vast and imaginative world out there that we can get to. Um, I'm, I'm just wrapped up in the history and the work to do that. Well, Shamira, thank you so much for your time. And I just wanted to ask one last question. And if listeners want to connect with you further and continue learning from you, What's the best way to connect with you? Um, the best way to connect to me is um, on social media. So Instagram and Twitter. I am Shamira, S-H-A-M-I-R-A dot D-E-A-N-N-E. D-E-A-N-N-E so Shamira Deanne. And then um, my portfolio website is ShamiraCovington.com. Wonderful. Okay. Well, yeah, I think this has been such an important conversation as it impacts each and every one of us and we all have a role to play to shift our culture and not give in to the corporate overlords who are trying to (laughs) just do real strange stuff um say it lightly (laughs) so thank you again yes no thank you Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Itasca, Leyline, and Rajna Swaminathan. 
For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Ali Constantine, Erica Ekram, Emily Guerra, Francesca Glassbell, Julia Jackson, and Priya Superwall. Thank you.